Well, Michael Fragan is a great political analyst and commentator. Serves us at the Nahum Siegel Network very, very well. And he is with us live via telephone to explore some of the things happening over the last couple of weeks in Cleveland and Philadelphia, etc. And um, Michael's family just observed the uh, shloshim for his mother. So, Michael, I take this opportunity again to extend our condolences and best wishes to the entire family. Thank you very much, Nahum. I appreciate it. Uh, nice to have you on, and uh, nice to finally be toward the end of the second convention. <laughs> was, was there anything either last week in Cleveland or this week in Philadelphia that boggled your mind, where you said to yourself, man, this does not seem to be a good strategy, uh, a good thing for either party to, uh, you know, to present or a certain person to speak. Was there anything that was not orchestrated well, in your opinion? How much time do we have, Nahum? <laughs> I, mean, I don't think your show is long enough. Uh, the time slot is long enough to go through that list. Well, I'd love, to, I, I'd love to go through it. Go ahead. But, I, but I, let me start with this. If, if I pitched a book to you and I said, well, the theme of the book is to take the two most unpopular candidates, the two with the highest liabilities, the two with really the most vulnerable uh, lines of attack, and I'm going to put them, and I'm going to make them the nominees of these respective parties, you would say, well, kind of, it's not a believable book. It's not a believable theme. I wouldn't go ahead and do that. But that's what we have here. I mean, we have two incredibly flawed, incredibly unpopular, incredibly unfavorable candidates uh, going up against each other in this general election. And, you know, and the electorate has every right to be in a revolt, and essentially what they are has every right to be in revolt against what's going on in election 2016. It also points to the fact that our election cycle is just way too long. No other country makes their people suffer like this. <laughs> okay. I got all that, and it's hard to disagree with any of that. But in terms of their presentation, they have the candidates that they have. They now have an opportunity to showcase them to the United States and the world in these two unique weeks. Uh, was there anything surprising to you about the way they did so? Well... Let me, let me just say this objectively, and I'll say this as a Republican, but, uh, you know, right now I'm not prepared to vote for either nominee, so just full, full disclosure here. Uh, the, I, I couldn't believe the fact that it wasn't just that Melania Trump plagiarized words from Michelle Obama. That she clearly did. It's that the Trump campaign immediately went into a, you know, defense mode and denying it for two days before right. it actually the truth came out. And then, of course, it's like, well, this is a non-story. We don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, you know, on the, uh, that would be the major feature of the Republican side because it kind of sets its own. Uh, the, the secondary feature, which I think will potentially has lingering negatives for the, on the Republican side, is the fact that going, the continual uh, attack on John Kasich, Mm. Yes, they were upset with him. Yes, he didn't. Uh, yes, maybe he didn't behave nicely, but more so than Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz just you know does his own thing and he always has. The the idea of going after John Kasich, who is the governor of Ohio, a state that they must win. There is no way that Donald Trump can win the presidency without Ohio, and to attack him continually uh, and have others attack him uh, on a consistent basis, it almost kind of set the theme of the convention as well. You know, we're going to settle scores with our enemies. And, you know, of course, they, they, you know, there, there were some highlights. There's no question the Trump children performed very well. Um, there were a number of other speakers who I think performed very well. But there was a definitely, definitely a difference in star power 
between what we've seen in the Republican side versus the Democratic side. Right. I mean, look at last night's lineup on the on the Democratic side. It right. was just quite incredible as far as star power. Uh, like them or not like them, there's no question that Joe Biden is a very likable, you know, uh, fellow, very likable politician, probably the most likable politician in America these days. Barack Obama is the president. Uh, Tim Kaine gave a passable speech. I don't think he's a great orator, but I thought it was decent. And I thought Mike Bloomberg, and I'm you know kind of biased in this direction, and you also have a relationship with him, did a masterful job at dismantling Donald Trump as only one billionaire tend to another billionaire. Right. And, you know, you didn't have that on the Republican side. You had, you had you know, features of it, but they just didn't seem to be ready to put it, put it on. Having said all that, Hillary Clinton... Is, uh, is not a popular figure. She's not a trusted figure. And there is simmering tension and there is lingering tension, significant lingering tension, within the Democratic Party you on know, a number of issues. It's funny because um, the, the people that I know who've attended uh, the two conventions, not necessarily you know, the same people attending both, but you know, groups of people I've spoken to who are at both, the, the takeaway that they have from all this is how hated she is. How even yeah. among the Democratic Party, there's so many dissenters, so to speak. Obviously, this helps us understand the appeal of Bernie Sanders a lot more. I think it was more than just his politics and uh, and rhetoric. Uh, there's a very big anti-Hillary um, sentiment out there. Oh, yeah, there certainly is. And you heard it, and you heard dissenters uh, out there. You heard people screaming. I mean, even during Leon Panetta's speech last evening, which... Uh, for a content perspective, it was a great speech. It was an excellent uh, takedown of, of Trump, particularly with regard to the Russian hacking scandal and the idea that you would call on a foreign power to hack government emails. It's, 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 a, it's a little bit shocking that anybody, I mean, when you think about it, anybody would say it. And yet, at the same time, you have protesters screaming and trying to drown him out. Right. And yes, yes, he was Secretary of Defense, but you know, you have to, you have, to have respect for the country, and it's as if you know, many of the people attending both conventions don't want the United States to have any institutions whatsoever. Let's just burn down the whole thing. Right. And you get that sentiment. And that sentiment is very strong on the Democratic side. Uh, whether there will be a reconciliation or whether, you know, some of these people just want to have their last gasp remains to be seen. Uh, well, you know, we will see how the electorate shakes out uh, in a couple weeks after the conventions and, you know, to see where people are going and where they're headed. Remember, right now, as far as polling is concerned, there are actually four candidates who are polling with a, with a percentage that's you know, high enough to kind of upset the balance in the election. There's the Libertarian and the Green Party candidates as well uh, who are both polling with you know, enough to register the polls. Right. Michael Fragan's with us talking, obviously, about the uh, 2016 election. What do you think of the Debbie Wasserman Schultz fiasco? No, I, I just I can't believe it took so long. It's, it, it, it's hard. I, I didn't need WikiLeaks or Russian hackers to confirm the fact that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was in the tanks for Hillary Clinton. I think everybody knew that all along. She barely hit it. And it's almost as if they just, somebody was kind of waiting for some event to happen, and this was the event so they could finally, they could finally oust her. But uh, she has been a polarizing figure for quite some time, and it's with a number of you know with a number of significant issues and nobody really wanted to take it on um, it's uh, you know you look at she had a she had a relatively easy job and she meant she managed to uh, you know she managed to mess it up and 
you know, we'll see if that affects her reelection. You know, she does have a primary right. uh, against somebody that Bernie Sanders is supporting, and let's see how much the mainstream party is willing to come to her defense. Uh, she was booed by her own delegation at a breakfast by the, by the Florida delegation breakfast. These emails will definitely hurt her. Uh, it remains to be seen. You know, she is. I mean, I know a lot of people. We all know a lot of people who live in that district. You know, that is the Miami. North Miami, you know, Jewish district, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, all the way into Broward County, uh, she will. She remains very popular amongst the uh, Jewish grandmothers uh, out there, and uh, so we'll. You know, let's see what. Let's see what that pretends for her in her election. Michael, uh, the Jewish vote. Uh, we essentially, and I would guess the candidates themselves at this point, basically know how this is going to go nationwide. But for those who think that for that reason. Uh, the Jewish vote is one that will not uh, get much attention. Uh, the reality is that some of the key states in this election do have a significant Jewish population, which might require these candidates to play to the Jewish crowd, so to speak. Do you agree, number one, that nationally we basically know how the vote's going to go and that statewide it could be a factor? I think the Jewish vote is is definitely significant in this election if, you know, if, the, if the election ends up being competitive in the, you know, in these states. I mean, it clearly looks like it will be right now based on polling. Uh, but if you're Donald Trump, you need, you can't sacrifice any votes in key states like Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania. You need, if, in order to win the states that have, a state like Pennsylvania that has gone blue, uh, consistently, you need all the votes and there is enough of a Jewish population there that you need it. In order to win Florida, being unpopular with Hispanics, you need Jews to cross over for you. Right. Uh, it, you know, Donald Trump says he's going to put New York into play. I don't see that based on the polling, but if that is the case, he needs Jewish votes in order to do that. Uh, so there, I don't see Donald Trump winning strategy without pulling over. You can't do that, getting 15% of the Jewish vote or 20% of the Jewish vote. You've got to do it with a much more significant number. Uh, whether he can do that remains to be seen. I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump released a list of a Jewish advisory committee, uh, some of people, you know, who in, in our orbit here, uh, but there were only three names on it, and that had been announced. And uh, all three are Orthodox, and two of them work for him. Uh, so is, you know, is he expanding that orbit? The traditional Republican supporters, meaning the, the RJC crowd, the big money Republicans, uh, even at this point, Sheldon Adelson have not Yes, they've been. You know, some of them have been supportive. Most of them have not been supportive. Uh, but at this point, uh, Sheldon Nielsen hasn't put up any money. So it, it really remains to be seen whether he is going to do it. He's certainly never done the traditional type of outreach to the Jewish community that's required uh, in order to do that. Hillary has been at it for quite some time, and you know we might not like her. At, you know, I'm sorry. Many in the community might not like her, and many might find her to be less than perfect on Israel issues. But uh, all in all, uh, she does represent a more moderate, uh, more international, more neoconservative foreign policy than does Donald Trump. Um, you know, Donald Trump definitely has run as an isolationist, except on Israel. Right. But on everything else, there's a lot in there to be very troubled by if you are a foreign policy hawk. Well, he has, he has been hawkish in regard to ISIS. When ISIS comes up, for some reason he's... He's always uh, aggressive in his discussions about how tough he'll be and how he'll destroy them or lead an effort to destroy them. So I don't know if sure. What is it? Yeah, yeah that, that is true. I mean, but it's, it, it never goes more than one sentence, Nahum. Right. It never goes more than we're going to hit them hard, we're going to hit them fast, and they're never going to know what happens. Yeah. 
that does not a foreign policy make. Uh, tell me about New York and New Jersey, uh, the majority of our listeners. Uh, what, what's the polling like for the two candidates in the two states? Uh, well, the, the, the last poll in New York that, uh, that I saw, public poll, was about 22 points in New York. Um, you know, New York is, is really a tale of, of, of two states, if you think about it. There's New York City and there's the rest of the state. If New York City was taken out of New York State, they, you know, just polled the rest of the state, Donald Trump actually really would have a fighting chance. But he would, he right now looks like he's going to do so poorly in New York City, as do most Republicans, that he really just can't, can't win. Of course, it's winner take all. New right. Jersey is closer, but not that close. I've seen 11 points, 10 points, which is not really striking distance. If you're looking at the general election now and you're a political strategist, you know, people in my business, you're looking at what are my targets. And, you know, now he's kind of, despite the rhetoric of saying he's going to go to these various states, he is spending time in Ohio. He is spending time in Pennsylvania. He is going to the states that he needs to go to. He was in Toledo yesterday. So that, those are the places that he needs to win. This election, if he has a chance, you know, if he has the path to victory, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, his path to victory is the Northern Rust Belt. Those states that have been hammering jobs that like him on trade and that really want a, who feel left out of the success that America has had economically over the last decade since the Great Recession. Those places that have never recovered from the Great Recession. Michael, and, go ahead. Go ahead. So that's, the, uh, so that's his path to victory. His path to victory, if New York is in play, I would have to say that, that this race has already been, been won by Donald Trump. Wow. Uh, Michael Fragan is with us. Uh, what do you th- for those of us who were looking for a, I don't know, uh, for a um, for personalities for uh, exciting uh, people to enter this arena, you know, at this stage as vice presidential nominees, uh, should we be disappointed at this point? Are the two vice presidential nominees relatively what we would call par of politicians? Great question, Nachum. And if you look at them, it's kind of, on paper you would say these are both do-no-harm picks. I'm not going to harm myself at all with, any, with, any, uh, with these types of picks. I'm going to reassure my voters that I'm there. Uh, I would, there is a contrast between the two. Uh, you know, I've watched Mike Pence's career for quite some time. Since he's been in, been in the House, he was the head of what had kind of formed what's known as the Republican Study Committee, which is a group before the conference shifted way to the right. That was the conservative gold standard within the within the uh, within within Capitol Hill amongst Republicans. He's been a staunch conservative. He's a very religious guy, and he is definitely a a very extraordinarily strong on Israel and and most of our issues. Uh, Mike Pence is has long is definitely a character contrast. To Donald Trump, right. and we'll have to, you know, we'll have to see how well they're able to work together and how well that that happens. I mean, there's no question. I am heartened by the idea that not just that Mike Pence is on the ticket, but that Mike Pence would accept the job of being the running mate. Um, that's definitely a, a plus if you're a if you if you want a little more gravitas within the Trump campaign. Right. Uh, on Tim Kaine. You know, a lot of people didn't want, a lot of people in the Democratic Party didn't want Tim Kaine because of his reputation as a centrist. But if you look at Tim Kaine's, you know, story, you know, as it were, it, it's, it's really, it's really an impressive life story, as is my senses, but they the both have great personal narratives. And Tim Kaine, despite 
being a white man from Virginia, uh, you know, if, if you want to just play the straight-up demographic card, he speaks fluent Spanish. He spent time as a missionary in Honduras. He, he is a big proponent of gun control, which I think is a winning issue for the Democrats on a national level, not necessarily on, the, on a local level. But he has, been, has a reputation as a centrist, and it basically says, yes, uh, yes we, you know, we, we not understand that there's a revolt on the left side of the party, but in order to win... Uh, right. the, the Clinton campaign is saying we need a guy like Tim Kaine to the ticket. It also potentially puts Virginia out of reach right. for the Republicans. And you know, once again, the Republicans really have to win a state right. like Virginia in order to in order to uh, win the presidency. Yeah, those the are the, those are the is, two things. Those are the two things that struck me. Um, uh, one was the Virginia uh, angle, which you just mentioned, uh, and keeping it out of play for Republicans. The other was that uh, essentially. Uh, it was an admission by the Hillary campaign that this entire thing is going to come down to Florida because uh, the announcement the following day was in Florida and in front of a majority Spanish-speaking population uh, where they were in Florida International. And uh, it, it just it seemed to me like, um, you know, strategically it was obvious that this is the state they have to go after and it's the only way they can win. Yeah, the, the, there's no... It's Florida, and it's the Latino vote in Florida. Right. It's it's which it's is much Latino. larger. Which is much larger, by the way, from the first Obama election. Oh, for sure. The Latino vote actually elsewhere continues to grow. It continues to be more significant. And you know, I've seen a statistic that you know Donald Trump leads amongst white men. I think by double digits right now, and it's it's quite incredible the the demographic breakdown of how you know how the country continues to be more polarized. Uh, you know, after eight years of Obama, when you know we were hoping that it would be the opposite, the country's more polarized now. But it, it, Donald Trump would have to win like an astounding sixty-five to seventy seventy percent of white men in order to win the election, based on his poor number, his poor uh, numbers right now amongst non-white men or non-whites, I should say, in order to balance that. That's just an incredible number. It might be possible right now. He's within striking distance of that type of number. But it, it does point to a serious problem within our country, and you know we saw it at the we seen it at the conventions. It's unfortunate that uh, the Republicans don't seem to acknowledge the problem of you know police violence and police you know overzealousness, if you will, in, in, that we've all seen on camera. That should be troubling, and it's also important that the Democrats don't seem to acknowledge that you know blue lives matter too. Um, you know, neither side seems to want to acknowledge each other. Yeah, that's true. Um, by the way, why do why do so many of us <laughs> keep meeting people from the minority communities who are voting for Trump, yet he's still at zero percent in that category nationwide? Uh, well, you're you're meeting different people because I have to say uh, I I am not, and you know I travel, you know, in pretty the the, the the people that I see the most who right now who are supporting Trump are are members of our community, the Orthodox Jewish community. Um, I don't, I'm not finding a lot of people out there, even amongst Republicans that I've worked with in the past, who are supporting, who are, well, well let's just say, even if they might vote for him, they don't feel comfortable supporting him. Are you looking forward to the debates? You mentioned earlier in this conversation that, for instance, on ISIS, it's usually a one-sentence, you know, tough answer, and tough meaning, you know, strong and aggressive answer, uh, and then nothing else after that. Uh, do, you, do you fear for Trump, if you would be a supporter of his, would you fear for Trump that he will not be able to give comprehensive answers in debate formats on issues like that? 
Uh, he has never felt the need to, and I don't think he'll start now. Uh, I think his, his debating strategy has been quite incredible and quite effective. Uh, you know, he walks into a debate, says what he wants to say, and claims victory afterward. And it's... Um, so far, it's think, worked, huh? I think, I, I think he'll do the same thing, and it's worked very well for him. Uh, I, you know, I have to say the debates um, have been uh, great entertainment, and uh, they've brought great entertainment, and I watched many of them, if not most, you know, if not all of them. So I have to, I will say that, uh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, you know, we'll see if people care. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is it doesn't seem that a lot of the electorate really cares about issues anymore. They just care about the system. And if you feel left out by the system, and you feel left out by the economy, and you feel left out, Donald Trump's your guy. Right. And that's, that's really what he has, you know, done. And it's not the traditional way the Republicans have won votes in the past, although you have to say that the, the Republicans have actually only won the popular vote one time, one time since the year 2000. Right. Um, I'm sorry, it's, it's go back even further than that. I'm sorry, they've only won the popular vote one time since 1988. Right. Um... When there were 16 Republicans, at what point did you think Trump would be gone? Would be gone? You mean out of the race? Yeah. I actually, I, I will say, I will count myself amongst those who did not take him seriously. Well, it's and, uh, this, that's, that's, that's bad on my part. This whole thing is unbelievable when you think about it. That he is, that he is, uh, the, the road that he took to defeat all those other Republican candidates, many of them traditional Republican candidates, of course, and to get to this point where he's within striking this, I would assume you would today say that it's a toss-up, right? Uh, I, will, I will say this. I think Donald Trump can win. Uh, I think that there's no question that the, these two candidates are kind of made for each other. Uh, Donald Trump, I think, could only beat Hillary Clinton. Uh, she wouldn't have, he would not have been able to beat Joe Biden or even Bernie Sanders. Wow. Uh, just because I think she is she is so flawed as a candidate, and I think that Hillary Clinton could only be Donald Trump if you take you know maybe fourteen of the other uh, Republican candidates or thirteen of them. I was you know I was thinking the other day that they would all beat her, and uh, so it's it, it, it's out there. So I think Donald Trump can win, but his campaign right now is not made to win. He doesn't have enough money. He doesn't have enough staff. He doesn't have the right people. I mean, there are so many things that I could think of to go out and counter Mike Bloomberg's speech last night. And or you know any of the others last night, and they're just not putting it out. The only person who seems to put out rapid response is Donald Trump on Twitter. So right. if he's not sit sitting there with his Twitter, uh, they don't seem to respond. Cruz, Hillary, you think Cruz would have won the election in November? I think just on a trust factor, um, yeah, Cruz might not be likable, but people trusted him. Right. People saw that you know he, in the end he was not a you know would have seen. In the in the end, that he was a guy who was serious and not, you know, just did not bring the same flaws to the table. Oh, look, every race is different. Every race is get, you know, has its own uh, particularities. But I do think that uh, Ted Cruz would have been a stronger candidate well. than, uh, than than Donald Trump. Uh, I think Donald Trump is is very very flawed, and as is Hillary. So they're both incredibly flawed. I'll start with that. And I'm going to maintain that. Isn't it interesting how so many people going into both conventions because of the uh you know, Trump factor in general, and the dissent in the Republican Party toward him, and the Sanders factor on the Democratic side, how there were predictions of, you know, brokered conventions or something that might appear like a brokered convention or an effort to have some type of brokered convention. It'll resemble Chicago 1968. And this whole system has become so cookie cutter, has become so predictable, 
in terms of what to expect each and every night that, you know, none of that came true? Well, there was a lot of intrigue on the Republican side. There was, uh, you know, depending on your perspective, the there there were a, there seemed to have been at least according to reports that seemed to have been enough signatures to <clears throat> to change the rules of the convention uh, coming out of, of you know the states. But the you know the chair uh, of the convention shut that down, didn't allow a vote, and uh, so therefore you know that's you think what what happened. So happened. There definitely was more intrigue on the Republican side than there was on the Democratic side, but there was some intrigue on the Democratic side, particularly around the platform uh, issues with Israel and uh, and and the like. So there is always some intrigue behind the scenes. But what goes on on stage is generally carefully choreographed. Although, although clearly, uh, I think they they messed up with regard to Cruz's speech, right. and uh, that was uh, you know I, I think that was an embarrassment for for the. You know, for the party that night, because the narrative, instead of Mike Pence's speech, and everybody talking about Mike Pence, and I thought he gave an excellent speech, uh, everybody's talking about Ted Cruz, uh, and they're even cut, cutting into Donald Trump's uh, lead-up to his speech. Right. And there's people continuing to talk about Cruz, and that's exactly what Ted Cruz wanted. Yeah. I guess uh, inexperience in politics sometimes comes through, and uh, that may have been a key mistake on Trump's part. Well, I don't think he has, I don't think he has a campaign staff. Right now, to uh, you know, he needs to he needs to get a campaign operation that's going to equal that of Clinton in order to pull this off. Right. He could do it. It's not uh, it's not as if he he can't do it, but you know, haven't seen it so far. And you know, I think that's a one big uh, you know one takeaway. I mean, so some of the stagecraft, some of the choreography you can see between the two conventions is is significantly different. I mean, as well. I mean, let me just say. If you're Donald Trump, I mean, this, and I don't know if you've heard the story yet, but last night broke a story that Trump's Mar-a-Lago has applied for 76 visa waivers right. for foreign workers to the club uh, uh, in order to, because they can't find Americans to do the job. Right. Now, if your whole campaign team, if you're in Toledo, Ohio last night talking about bringing back jobs, but your own company is bringing, you know, is asking for visa waivers for 76 foreign workers, not the right message to be sending, <laughs> from my perspective. You know, it's just, you have, to, you have to think about all these things and the impact. Now, so far, those types of things have not impacted him at all. People just don't seem to say there's, there is a, you know, there's, there's a contradiction here. But, you know, maybe eventually they will. Yeah. Michael Fragan, political analyst and commentator for us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Much appreciated. Thank you, Nahum, and uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate the good wishes of all the listeners out there that I had after the passing of my mother. Yes, we should only share many, many happy occasions together. More coming up. It is a three-weeks Thursday format. Here we are at JM in the AM.